0: 1 Samuel chapter 29, if you would open your Bibles there, we are going to look at all of 29 and a small portion of 30, we're going to bleed over into 30 and it will make sense to you as I read. First Samuel 29 beginning in verse 1, this is God's word to us this afternoon, let's give our attention to it. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel, chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. It's the reading of God's Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we we thank you for this day, for the many provisions that you have provided for your people. And Father, we we humbly acknowledge that we that we do not even begin to to praise you for the many gifts that you give us. That we are, as Pastor Bain said this morning, like pigs just eating the slop and And not giving thanks. And so forgive us. Because you give us astounding gifts. And in particular, you give us the gift of your word energized by your spirit every Lord's day. May we as your people not take it for granted. In fact, this afternoon, Lord, we would ask once again, would you visit us? Would you instruct us by your word? Would you encourage us in the faith? Point us to your son. Even in the text from old, we thank you for it. We are grateful for it. Bless it now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want you to consider with me this, for just a moment this afternoon a particular elder qualification found in First Timothy 3, verse 7. You can run there if you would like. First Timothy 3, verse 7. Paul says it this way concerning an overseer, concerning an elder. He must be well thought of by outsiders. If you have a different translation, New King James, I believe, says a good testimony. Now, this attribute is not just for elders. It is an attribute that all of us who are in Christ should display. In fact, the apostle tells us In Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And he says this, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if we're brutally honest This expectation can strike us as odd. It may even strike us as being unreasonable. For we know that oftentimes in Scripture, that Scripture characterizes that the fallen world is immoral, that the fallen world is perverse. It's even aggressive towards God's people in persecution, especially as we seek to live upright and godly lives, we see the world as being very corrupt. And so let me ask you a question this afternoon. If the world is so bad, why should we care what it thinks about us as Christians? Well, Paul's admonition to us should be a reminder of how common grace preserves general morality and natural law and how much we can have in common with the virtues of this world unbelievers can generally practice and recognize a fairly high standard in fact sometimes they do better than we they do better than us respect honesty decorum so their opinions about us they do matter At least to a certain extent. It can be a very important testimony of God's grace in our lives. For If you declare to be a Christian, but your pagan neighbors can point out a bunch of vices in your life, it is typically not God-honoring. Well, as we will see in today's narrative, as David lives among the pagans, Their opinion matters. And maybe a bit to our surprise, and we find all the people, of all the people, the Philistines, testifying to the uprightness and loyalty of David as God's anointed one. In fact, so much so, I believe that this foreshadows for us the very testimony of Pilate about Christ. So, after Saul's visit to the medium of Endor that we looked at a couple weeks back, once again, the camera is going to make a shift, and it's going to go back over to David. We are taken from the land of Israel to the land of the Philistines. Now, you need to understand that as we approach this chapter, chapter 29, this afternoon, we we are being taken back in time just a little. The narrator is not a time lord, and he doesn't have a blue box, but he is going to take us back in time. Yes, chronologically speaking, chapter 29 takes place prior to the situation in 28. Let me remind you that back in 28, the Philistines are already assembled for battle. As you recall, Saul had looked down upon the assembled armies of the Philistines. And, and what happened? He became very afraid. And it was the night before the battle that he, he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord did not speak, and so he went to this witch, to this medium of Endor. And as Samuel's last words to Saul was that he was going to die that very next day. Yes, here in chapter 29, the Philistines are still gathering their forces. They they have not yet assembled. They're still preparing for war in the town of Aphek, as we read in verse 1. This would be approximately 20 miles away from Shunem, which was going to be the battlefield. You will also notice that Israel... Israel had not reached their battle position of Gilboa yet. So in the opening of 29, we are taken back a few days, possibly as long as a week prior. Now we must ask, why does the narrator do this? Why convey the story out of chronological order? Well, I believe that there are a couple reasons, and they're really good reasons. For one, it puts the chapters for us side by side. Think of some of you guys that work with computers uh, on a regular basis. Think of computer monitors, two computer monitors side by side, or some of us that are a little old school, a split screen, okay? This would allow us to see what Saul is doing in preparation for the war, and what David is doing roughly about the exact same time. Therefore, this reordering of the timeline for us creates tension and suspense. For in the last chapter, we're already informed of the outcome of the battle. Israel loses, and we are told that Saul is going to die, and so are his sons. It gives us the end of the story. But we do not know how the story unfolds, do we? Yes, Saul dies in battle, but how does he die? From chapter 27, we know that David is heading into battle with the Philistines. So questions begin to flood our minds. Will David kill Saul in battle? Will David actually fight with those pagans against the people of Israel? Is this going to be another temptation story for David? Or will David somehow get out of the war? Well, this going back in time raises these kind of questions for us. And then it prepares us for the answers. It allows us to compare side by side Saul and David. To see the differences between the rejected king and And the Lord's true anointed one. So that brings us to the text. And the Philistines are busy making preparations for war. The troops are flowing in by the hundreds and by the thousands, according to our text. They're they're setting up camp, they're sharpening up their swords, they're getting ready for inspection, and the generals are making their rounds. Aphik is a rallying, rallying point before marching up to Shunem. Now, as the generals reach King Achish's forces, they stumble upon some Israelites, some Hebrews. And if you're about to fight Hebrews, you would find it odd to see some of them in your own army. It would be like finding some Red Sox fans in amongst Uh, some ranger fans, you know, in this vicinity somewhere around here. What are they doing here? Now, Achish responds in a weird way. Note in the middle middle of verse 3. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Achish practically boasts about David being in his army. He says, this is David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel. Now, as you know know by now, David is kind of famous, not just in Israel. He's famous among the Philistines for what? For killing Philistines. Between the whole Goliath thing and his many other victories, David is well known among the Philistines. Now, there are two noteworthy points in Achish's response that we should think about. First, Achish says David deserted to him. Achish actually thinks that David deserted Israel to be aligned with him in particular. Simply put... He thinks David is a traitor. After all, all that Akish knows up until this point is that David has been killing fellow Israelites. This is what he thinks. And of course, we know that, that David was not a deserter, that he was pushed out of Israel, not just by Saul, but by some of the other Israelites. Akish is fully duped by David's deception. Now, secondly, second point akish gives a stellar recommendation of david's loyalty here look the entire time he's been with me i have found no fault in him david's service and devotion to akish has been impeccable now we don't know all that david has done for akish how he served him but Besides the deception about fighting Israel, David has been like the perfect employee. He would have that sign on the back door, you know, employee of the month. David has always gone to work on time. He does great work. He's very responsible. In short, David has exhibited all those common virtues of being an upright and hardworking servant. This is good testimony of David's character. Though in the present context, this was not the wisest thing that Achish could have said to his generals. For the generals hear this, that is, that this is David, and they are livid. They're beside themselves. Look at verse 4 with me. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us in battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? They demand that David be sent back home to Ziklag and to do so immediately. They even lay down the law to Achish. There's no way in the world David's going to fight with us. They're not going to take any chances. This battle would be the perfect way for David to get back into Saul's good graces. And in a sense, as we know, the generals are absolutely correct about David. In fact, the generals here correct King Achish. Achish is confident that he is David's lord, that he is David's master. But the generals point out, no, David's lord is still King Saul. His loyalties still lie within the nation of Israel. Of course, the irony is that the generals, once again, they're right. They are correct. Achish is right in that David has served him well, But the generals, the generals are also right in that David is still loyal to the covenant community, the nation of Israel. There's no way that David would betray his own people. And what do the generals use as evidence? Well, they use that famous song about David. Note verse 5, Is not this David of whom they sing to one another and dances Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, when was this song composed? I know you all know, we've talked about it. Well, it was right after David killed Goliath, who was from Gath, the city of which Achish is king. The general tells King Achish, dude, David killed your giant. He beheaded Goliath. You think that he's not going to behead us too? You have to be crazy. Generals are not duped like Achish. They know where David's loyalty lies. Thus, in a chapter where we are questioning David's loyalty, where we wonder if David will actually fight with the Philistines, if if he would even consider killing Saul in such a chapter, here we hear, listen to this, We hear the true testimony of the pagans, of the Philistines, and it is this. If you get one sentence, get this one. David is loyal to the covenant community. David is loyal to Israel. There's no way that he would fight against his own people. They even quote the song that testifies that he is the true champion of Israel. It was this song, it was this song that was misunderstood by King Saul that propelled David towards the throne. In a sense, it published his royal destiny. And so providentially through the words of the pagan, uncircumcised Philistines, we hear that David is the Lord's true anointed one. What Israel could not see, think about this with me, What Israel could not see as a result drove David from the land. The Philistines, in particular the Philistine generals, they see it plain as day. Well, the generals have put their foot down and King Achish really doesn't have a choice but to send David home. In fact, He's the one that has to break the bad news to David, that he cannot fight. And it's interesting to see how Achish explains this to David in verse 6. This is very interesting wording here. Note verse 6 with me. Then Achish called David and said to him, listen to this, or look at it, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out in the with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve you. Did you guys see it? First, he swears by the Lord. Let me help you with this. By the name of Yahweh, that David is upright, that David is good. Here we have in this text a pagan king swearing by the Lord. Talk about strange. And yet he swears to the truth. The key phrase, I have found no wrong or evil with you. Now this line should remind us about a particular another narrative. It's the exact same phrase that Abigail's statement said about David. With the foresight of faith, Abigail declared that no moral evil would be found in David. And now what we see in our text this afternoon is that a pagan king testifies that this is indeed true. Achish gives his amen to the words of Abigail. This is the beautiful irony of our narrative. Achish is foolishly mistaken about David's true loyalty. He arrogantly thinks that he owns David, and yet, besides this, Achish speaks the truth about David. He testifies by the name of Yahweh that David is the best servant ever. Now, let me ask you, and think about this. Why is this important? Why is this important? You see, to be a good king, you need to be a better servant. To be a good king, you need to be a better servant. Great leadership only sprouts from the soil of servanthood. For a servant learns to think and care for others first rather than himself. This is something that Saul never learned as he was always hyper-focused on himself He is the epitome of being a navel gazer, always looking at him, for him, how everybody benefits him. In particular, how he held so tightly to his reign. But David, David has learned to be a servant, first to Saul and now to the Philistines. And we are given the sworn testimony of this king Achish. Well, as you can only imagine, David is not too happy about this news of going home. He wants to know what in the world he did wrong, why he cannot fight. Yet once again, David does tip his hand with his true intentions with a double meaning. Look at the middle of verse 8. What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? Now, and, And here it is. That I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Now, Achish hears that last line as referring to himself. He thinks he is David's Lord, he thinks he is David's King. Yet we have seen, and it's important that you, when you take the whole narrative of 1 Samuel. In light of this, David only uses this phrase for Saul. David has always called Saul, my lord, the king. And my point is this, that David really wants to fight Achish. Behind the disguise, David is essentially asking, can you please let me fight so I can kill you and your men? You have to love the irony here, and yet Achish's hands are tied so again tells David you need to go. He first testifies to David's righteousness. In fact, this is another interesting point in our text. Akish says to David in verse 9 that he has been like what? An angel of God to him. Can you get a better compliment? But then Akish orders him to go home. He tells David to get up before sunrise and at first light get on the road. And so with a touch of urgency, he says, you need to get out of here and you need to do it quickly. So first thing in the morning, David and his men are homebound. The journey takes them three days from Aphek to Ziklag. This means that David and his men, three days, they're hungry, tired. They have become very road-weary. No doubt they're running a little low on provisions. David and his men can't wait to get home for that hot shower and that home-cooked meal. You know how it is when you want the comforts of your own home when you've been away from well, you've been away from the house for a while. Nothing beats your bed. Everybody gets that, right? And I, I hate those hotel room uh, their, their beds. I, I just don't. I never sleep. Quite the same, but when you lay down in your bed. So you can imagine. Now, before they get home, the narrator gives us, as the reader, another quick flashback. While David was gone, the Amalekites raided Ziklag. Now, it's clear that they are taking revenge for David's raids against them. So while Ziklag was undefended, the Amalekites took the city. They burned it to the ground, and they captured all the women and the children. We are told the outcome before David learns it. So thankfully, as readers, we know that none of the women and the children die. Now, Taking them captive means that the Amalekites more than likely intend on selling them into some, or forcing them into slavery, which can be a worse fate. But now, once we are told the outcome, we get to see it through the eyes of David. Look at chapter 30, verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. The text literally says, behold, it was burning. The city, that is. Imagine with me that you are heading home. You can see smoke on the horizon in your neighborhood That smoke is actually kind of like, wait, my my house is around that corner. You turn the corner and you see your house and the house of your men burning to the ground. Your home that you left your wife and your children in is burning. Are they alive? What happened to them? Just the thought of that picture just makes you want to squirm when you know that your wife and your children could possibly be in that house. You could just see David and his men sprinting to their homes to look for their families. They reach the homes that are on are covered in flames, but there are no bodies. They see no blood or indication of their families. And while this might be a small relief, this leaves them with the mental agony of the unknown. Yes, we as readers we know what's going on, but they don't. Where's my family? Are they still alive? Can I get them back? Are the Amalekites or whoever took them torturing or ravaging the women? As you know, some of the worst atrocities in war are against women and children in captivity. David and his men were hoping for a hot meal and a warm hug when they returned home, but instead they returned to their worst nightmare. It is no wonder that the men cry aloud and they weep until their tears run dry. They cry until they're too weak to cry anymore. In fact, the men are so miserable that they begin to talk about doing what? Stoning David. In their bitter sorrow, the men begin to blame David. If it wasn't for David's play acting with those Philistines, we would be home and this would not have happened this is David's fault. He has put our family's lives at risk. David must pay. You can hear the, the echoes around the camp. There's no wonder then that our text says that David was greatly distressed. First he loses his wives and now his men want to stone him. Now this line about being in distress puts David in perfect parallel with Saul. In fact, this is exactly what Saul said to Samuel in the previous chapter that we covered two weeks ago. What did he say? I am greatly distressed. And so this then sets up the perfect comparison. And I want you to think about this comparison with me. On the night before the battle, King Saul is greatly distressed. And so he sought after the Lord But when the Lord was silent, Saul resorted to the gross practice of necromancy. And at that point, Saul was told that Israel was going to be defeated and that he was going to die as well as his sons. But now, at nearly the same timeline, David is greatly distressed as well. Their houses have been burned to the ground. Him and his men, their families are captured. His men are considering stoning him. And so what does David do? Well, he also seeks after the Lord. He calls for the priest to bring the ephod. Just like Saul, David inquires of the Lord. But where the Lord was silent with Saul, he answers David. David asked the Lord, shall I pursue the Amalekites? Now, for you and I, this question may seem a little obvious. Of course, you go after your wife and your children, right? But David has learned that the obvious is not always the answer. Rather than being hasty, he did not presume upon the Lord. He asked for the Lord's will. Then he asked, Will I succeed? Lord, will I overtake them is the question. And the Lord answered, yes, go pursue them. You will overtake them. The Lord even adds a wonderful promise at the end of verse 8 of chapter 30. And it says, and shall surely rescue. And with this, the comparison between Saul and David is set What we have before us are two kings. First, there's Saul, the king that just could not obey God's word, who served himself more than the people. And on the eve of battle, in great distress, Saul resorts to necromancy, we can say this way, to idolatry, to find the will of God. And he receives his verdict. He receives judgment. You will die. Saul is the king that leads God's people, listen to me, into defeat and death. Oh, but then there is David. The pagan king of the Philistines gave his sworn testimony that David is an excellent and upright servant. To him he walks... Like an angel of God. The pagan generals, they submitted their verdict and their testimony that David's loyalty lies with the people of God, Israel. He's the true servant and champion of Israel. Yes, even the giant slayer. And in David's distress as he seeks the Lord, the Lord answers, You will save. David is the king that goes after God's people to rescue them, to deliver them. David rescues the women and the children while Saul will lead men to an early grave. And once again, we have before us the Lord setting up for us, listen to me, the most beautiful picture and model of our Lord Jesus Christ, our true king. For David, David's time with the Philistines shows us a remarkable resemblance of Jesus before Pilate. You see, that's the one thing about Jesus' trial. Even though the final verdict was that Jesus was going to die, you know it, you know the narrative all too well. Throughout the proceedings, there was a constant testimony of Jesus being innocent. The priest tried to find something on Jesus. They just couldn't do it though. More so than Achish with David, the priest couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. So they had to resort to false charges. They paid off witnesses to lie. And then when they handed him over to Pilate, Pilate had the same problem. Pilate testified three times, I find no guilt. In him. Pilate even tried to release Jesus. He told the priest, this man doesn't deserve to die. It's you that has the problem. So once again, one last question for you to think about this afternoon. Why is this important? Well, it means that through providence, and I want you to think about this with me, this is important, through providence, the world listen to me, the fallen, broken, sinful world has already registered its testimony that Jesus is the righteous one. The world often likes to go back on this testimony, to renege on this fact, nah, Jesus wasn't innocent. He deserved to die. He wasn't who He said He was. There are people today when... when When you'll hear him say, Jesus, he was a great teacher. Man, his work on social reform was just excellent. He has a lot of good things to say, like other religious leaders, and they put Jesus side by side with Gandhi. And they will say, but he is not the Son of God, and he is not my Savior. But brothers and sisters, listen to me, that... Doesn't work. They don't get to to renege on the testimony out of an earlier verdict. For through Pilate, the world has already registered his testimony that there was no wrong in Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said this, I am the light of the world. He let Peter fall down and worship him. He said before Abraham was, I am. Jesus even said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. My point is this. These declarations are declarations that he is the second person of Trinity. The God-man. And these declarations are indeed true. Jesus is who He says He is. And even the world affirmed it. And so God has given us, or I could say it this way, your faith. All sorts of evidence that, that Christ's declaration is true. Jesus is your King. He is your Savior. He is your God. Even those that put him to death said it was so. One more major point for us to think about this afternoon. We see in David the pattern of servanthood before the throne. David had to learn to think of others before he could rule and reign. Even though he was already anointed, David served Saul the very one that he would replace. And he served Saul well. He was never an usurper. And then when he went into exile, he served the Philistines, the enemy that he would soon fight against. But while he was with them, he served them. And now, in deep distress, he prays to the Lord to serve his men and their families. Likewise, on the dark night, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus came face to face being a servant. Would he drink that cup of wrath and follow not his will, but his father's? And yes, he did. For he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. By being a servant, even unto death, Jesus became your king who rescued you. And brothers and sisters, think about this with me. It is a powerful thing. He rescued you by not slaying others. He rescued you by being slayed in your place. Yes, on the cross, Jesus didn't think of himself but His thoughts were upon you. His mind was set on the Father's glory to save you from your sins. This was the Lord's prayer for you. And it is what the Father answered, because Jesus was the obedient Son unto death. And with Jesus' prayer answered for you, this should give you confidence as you pray in His name. In fact, your prayers are based on the glorious truth that Jesus' prayers are answered for you. Jesus asked for you to be His own. And through His death and resurrection, the Father gave you to Christ. Body and soul in life on this side of heaven and in the next, this is the solid foundation for your faith, as well as your prayers. That you have a sympathetic high priest who understands your suffering, your trials. And he answers your prayers to give you grace on this side of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, be steadfast in your prayers. May you approach the Father in the wonderful work of Christ. And may one of your prayers be, I don't May one of your prayers be that we, as God's covenant community, would live a holy and upright life, listen to me, in front of the world. May we not cause undue reproach upon the gospel of Christ in the midst of a fallen world. The vitriol that I see, that you see on social media by Christians is to our shame. May we live dignified lives, striving to live at peace with all men as far as it depends upon us. And all for this and the glory of the name of Christ. May we serve Christ in this capacity here and now as he first served us unto death on the cross. May we serve Him out of gratitude for His infinite service to us.